right. Happy Palm Sunday. One person. One person. Yeah, the 8 o'clock crowd had the same reaction. Well, it is Palm Sunday, and in your Bibles, um, the heading that you'll see most of the time is the triumphal entry, and uh, what you're seeing is that uh, on this one uh, moment in time, uh, you have the world, a very small segment of the world, but you have the world recognizing, noticing, uh, exclaiming um, this, this reality, that Jesus is the Christ. Everything that we see in John, and we're going to kind of walk through a lot of these things, but everything that we see in John is, is confirming and validating the, the truth uh, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, uh, the Christ or the Messiah um, is uh, a term that we probably need to deal with or, or understand a little bit. Because when I say that, um, most of us, we kind of understand, you know, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ. But the, the truth is that um, the word is, um, is the same word in Hebrew as it is in Greek. It, what it was was transliterated instead of translated. So how many of you know what transliterated means? Okay, how many of you are afraid to raise your hand because you think I'm going to call on you and ask you what it means? <laughs> so what a transliteration is, is that it takes a, a foreign word in another language and it just moves it into English using you know, our English alphabet. And so the word in Hebrew is mishak, and then that word was uh, translated into Greek, which is Christos, okay? And both of those words just became English words, Messiah and Christ. But the word actually literally means that the anointed one, okay? That's, that's what the word means. If you were to translate it to be the anointed one, and when the people recognized that Jesus was the anointed one, um, they understood that Jesus was specifically uh, fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament that talked about what the anointed one would be or who he would be. There are only two types of people that were regularly anointed in the Old Testament. How many of you know what kinds of people would be anointed in the Old Testament? Just shout it out. Priests and kings. Okay, and so when you talk about the anointed one, Okay, a priest and a king, they would both be anointed with uh, a particular kind of oil uh, that was a specific um, concoction that was regulated according to what scripture was, and nobody else could use it for anything else. If it was against the law to mix that specific uh, mixture of oil. You, you had to use it for a specific oil of anointing for kings and priests. And so they were anointed for service. They were recognized. It was a confirmation of who they were, of, of their service. And so when you say the anointed one, you're saying there is one who is going to be both king and priest forever. Okay, Jesus is going to be the, the holy, the righteous, the perfect um, priest who is going to be also the ruler of the universe. He is our king and he is our mediator forever. There's, there's no other that is going to mediate between you and God other than Jesus Christ. He sits at the right hand of the Father forever in order to intercede for you and me before God. Amen? Which 
That means that you don't need any other human being on the earth to mediate for you between you and God. That's why the Bible talks about in the New Testament about Christians being a kingdom of priests. Because now, here I, I can go to God, I can go confidently to his throne at any moment, knowing that he'll receive me in the name of Jesus, because Jesus has paid it all, he's done it all, he intercedes for me personally and consistently and without fail, because he lives forever. And then he says that now I, I, not only do I have access to the throne, but now I mediate for people who don't know Jesus. So as a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus, then your job is to pray for those who don't know Jesus because they don't have access to the Father. Our culture and the world doesn't know that, okay? We, we, we have glossed over the idea that everybody is accepted by God, everybody is known by God, everybody is loved by God equally. Listen, without Jesus Christ, okay, you have... There are two types of people, people who know Jesus and have, have confident access to the throne of grace, and there are people that don't know Jesus that are still under his condemnation. And the, those who know Jesus are called to mediate, intercede through prayer for those who don't know Jesus. Praying and hoping and, and believing that somehow by that prayer that we can stir up people's hearts, the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the gospel, and then see that other people can come into a right relationship with God through Jesus. He's our king. Uh, that means that he rules and he reigns, and we follow his lead. And we're going to walk through some of these things, but for just one moment in Jesus's ministry, okay, in this one um, just segment of, of everything that was going on, it seemed like the clouds parted, that understanding fell on the people, and there was this, this widespread public acclamation and acceptance that he, he is the anointed one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one who's going to rule and reign forever, and, and we're going to worship and exalt and glorify him. And so Palm Sunday is uh, one of the most um, spectacular celebrations, not only in Scripture, but in the life of the church today. Amen? Because we are, finally, we get this chance to say, wow, they, they got it. And uh, we get it. And because we get it, we celebrate. Uh, our, our celebration, it's always funny. The kids are so um, exuberant and loud. When, did you hear them in the hallway before they came in? Like, you, you had to, like, yell at them to kind of quiet down because we couldn't even, like, hear the music going on in the sanctuary because of, of how loud they were. And then they come into the sanctuary, and they're like, oh, uh, there's a bunch of people in here. Hosanna. And I just, every single time um, it, it happens that they just get so shy. But, and this is, I wonder if this is kind of what we do too. Like, in, in our hearts, like, we feel this sense of, like, I just love God so much. I'm so amazed by him. But then, like, we come together in church service, and, and do we celebrate him like that? I mean, do we? And, and I know that it's nobody's fault, and it's not anything that we should, be, you know, be ashamed of. It's just this sense of, like, we're so concerned with how other people are going to respond to how we're worshiping that we don't just, you know, go all out and worship him the way that, that we ought to, except for Josh. Josh does every single week. Amen? Okay. Let's stand and read God's word this morning. The triumphal 
entry, John 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, okay, we'll get back to that in a minute. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out into, uh, to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing or um, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the world has gone after him. And Father, we, uh, we do pray that that would be fulfilled prophecy in our day, Lord, that the world would go after Jesus, Lord, wholeheartedly, um, desiring your rule and your reign, uh, desiring your presence and your power, Lord. Uh, we pray that we would, as representatives of Jesus, of of uh, the faith that you brought, the faith that you uh, paid for, the, the, the relationship that you enabled through your sacrifice, Lord, that we would represent uh, this segment of the world to the rest of the world, that we would intercede, that we would lift up our, our faith and our voice and our, our sense of worship of, of Jesus, Lord. And no matter where we are, what we're doing, that, Lord, you would uh, call us and, and enable us and strengthen us uh, to lift up your name. You, you said that if you be lifted up, you'll draw all men to yourself, Lord. I, I thank you for that. We, we don't have to try to make people worship you. All we have to do is glorify you and, and praise you and uh, give you the, the glory that you are due because of who you are and what you've done. And so today, God, uh, Lord, we pray that we would uh, give you all the glory that we would worship you wholeheartedly, that we would not refrain, we wouldn't hold back, that we would celebrate the life, the new life that you've given us through your son, Jesus. We thank you that we have these things, that we can pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So uh, the triumphal entry is one of those unique things that uh, actually all four gospels talks about. Uh, John, if you, if you read John, you understand that John is different than the other Gospels. He writes in a different way. Um, he, he has different stories. There are things that John, he does not bother with that the other Gospels do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called, referred to as the synoptic Gospels, which means seen together because so much of those three Gospels overlap almost 100%. There are some little differences here and there, but those three Gospels, as you read them, you see that the same stories are, are in the same way mostly throughout. And then you get to John, and then it's very different. He starts his Gospel off instead of with, you know, Mary and Joseph and the angels and the visions and, and Jesus being born. He starts off with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and and. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so John has this 
different perspective. But when you see something like the triumphal entry um, in John, as well as in all the other Gospels, then you say there's something significant about this. John does not want us to miss that there's something really unique and significant and important about the triumphal entry. And here's really what it is. John connects the triumphal entry of Jesus with specifically the raising of Lazarus from the dead. What he basically is saying here is that the triumphal entry, this moment when the, the whole you know, city of Jerusalem or the world you know, recognized that Jesus was the Messiah was because the world had seen this fantastic miracle in chapter 11 that Jesus raised a corpse... A rotting corpse, okay? Well, if you weren't here last week, you can go back and, and watch that video of, of the sermon, okay? Jesus took somebody who was uh, in the process of decaying and brought them back to life. And there were witnesses there seeing this whole thing happen. They went out and they spread the word to all these other people said, Can you believe what Jesus is able to do and what he did? And they came around Jesus and they said, This must be the Messiah, Okay. So this is what's happening. John is saying that all of this is connected. And not only that, but the, the real point of it is that the connection between the raising of Lazarus, which is kind of like the final straw for the religious leaders that says to them, they must put Jesus to death. They must seek his, his execution. That it led to the triumphal entry, which was truly for them the absolute final straw. Like, this is what they say. This is getting us nowhere. Trying to ignore that uh, the, the people are running after Jesus and, and that he's such a, a profound public figure. That's not going to get us anywhere. We, we have to do something. It spurred them on to seek his execution, which was the point. That was the whole trajectory of Jesus's life, that he had to go to the cross, pay for the sin of the world, in order to provide for you and me a way to be confident in the presence of God. Amen? Here's the, the strange thing. I don't know if it's strange. Maybe it's pretty normal. Um, but throughout the Gospel of John, what you see is that this was not unique. This wasn't just a, a out-of-the-blue thing that happened in the, the final part of Jesus' life. This was something that that Jesus encountered over and over and over again throughout his ministry, that he would do something that was mind-blowing, a miracle that would just kind of get everybody kind of just almost in a frenzy of, we got to do something with this guy positively. In John chapter 6, um, in chapters 5 and 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Uh, the, the crowds that are there are so overwhelmed with how amazing this is that they immediately want to make him king right now. And so Jesus dismisses the disciples. He somehow talks the crowd down to, to not making him king right then and there. He goes and he prays all night. The disciples try to cross the, the Sea of Galilee in a boat and they can't quite get there for some reason. They're just God miraculously is preventing this from happening. Jesus walks across the Sea of Galilee. Remember that story? On the water. And he finally confronts the, the disciples and he gets in the boat and they immediately get to the other side. And the next day, here's what's... We all know those stories, right? Anybody not know those stories? Like this is like, yeah, this is stuff that... No matter if you're a Christian in the church, not in the church, you know this story. 
walking on water. But a lot of people don't know what happened the next day. The next day, Jesus is um, with his disciples on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The crowds are like, where's Jesus? We saw the boat leave. He wasn't on it. He's not here. They go and they find him. They should have been saying, how did you get here so fast? They didn't seem to ask that question, they, but they were still kind of like, we want more of what you just gave us. And Jesus confronts them and he says, you don't want me for me. You want me for what I just gave you, food. You, you are satisfied, you are fed, and now you just want more of that. You just want the miracle of, of provision. You don't really want the miracle of the Christ in following me as king. And so what happens is he begins to really challenge them. And he says, and many of you do know this part, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Right? And then what happens? They're like, okay, give us more flesh and blood and we'll... That's not what happens. Okay, what they say is, I don't know about this. And they begin to walk away from him. In fact, it says even his disciples. Now, disciples, um, we can't get that term confused because the 12 apostles are also called 12 disciples. Okay, that's, that, but that's a general term. The apostles were the, the called ones, those who were the messengers of Jesus, who were, who were designated apostles. But there were hundreds of disciples, people that were following him from place to place, listening to his teaching. There are hundreds of those. Even of the hundreds of people that were following him as disciples, they began to walk away. So much so that Jesus turns to his apostles, the 12, and he says, are you going to abandon me as well? Okay. And here's why we love Peter, why he, he has this wonderful place in, in Scripture as being kind of front and center, because Peter says, you have the words of life. Where else would we go? Right. And Peter is saying in that moment what we saw last week, what uh, Martha says to Jesus later, which is that, Lord, I have no clue what you're talking about, but I trust you. That, that's kind of what he's saying. He's like this whole thing about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. That sounds really weird, but I know that you're the Messiah. I know that you're the one that we're supposed to follow. So I'm going to just stay with you long enough to see where this all goes. That's what Martha says when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and life. Those who believe in me will never die. And he says, do you believe this? And she says, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ. And so she says, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I trust you. So yeah, I believe that. And here's, here's why this is important. How many of you know and understand everything in this book? I was just talking to my Sunday school class this morning about something I, I have yet to understand. I'm, I'm, I study it. I try to figure it out. I, I see the context, and I, I still don't really quite know what it essentially means. Um, there are things in here that I don't quite grasp because I'm not ready for it. There are things in this book that God has placed that are such profound truths that don't let it trip you up 
Don't let it stop you from trusting God. Don't let it be something that kind of keeps you from some stepping into faith. If we could understand everything in this book, then we could understand the entire mind of God. And none of us are, are there yet. One day, when we go to heaven, he says that we will see as we are seen. We will understand fully. That'll be a wonderful day. Until then, um, we learn and we grow and we come to this place of, of uh, new understanding in a pace that, that God has allowed for us to grow in. Amen? He's carrying you along. He's taking you to the next step where, you, where he has you, where he wants you to be, and, and it's okay to be there. It's okay if you're are all the way at the beginning. And there's a lot of this stuff that you don't understand. It's okay if you're in the middle. It's okay if you're towards the end. Wherever you are, it doesn't really make a big difference. The point is, do you trust him? Will you, will you continue to follow him? Will you continue to rely on him that, that uh, he's got more truth for you to discover? And so they come to this conclusion like, I trust you, Jesus. And uh, I don't understand everything that you're talking about, but I trust you. There were a lot of people that didn't trust him. And so they left John chapter 9. Um, something kind of similar happens, maybe a little different. Uh, but in John chapter 9, one of my favorite chapters, Jesus heals the man born blind. You remember that? This guy never has seen in his life. He's in his 40s, so he's pretty old. <laughs> and... It's on a Sabbath, and so what happens is that Jesus leaves. He knows it's Jesus, but he doesn't get a chance to follow after him, and uh, he walks away, and then this guy, because Jesus uh, did this miracle on a Sabbath, the leaders, the religious leaders, actually take the guy, and they didn't quite arrest him, but they begin to interrogate him uh, because they can't understand how this could happen on a Sabbath. In their minds, that doesn't make sense that Jesus would do a miracle like this because um, he, he, he broke the Sabbath according to the, the man's law. Not according to God's law, but according to the man's tradition. And uh, they couldn't understand that. And so they interrogate the guy. The guy says the same thing that Peter's saying, the same thing that Martha's saying. He's like, I don't know all the details. I don't understand how this all works. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And I know, I know that he did it and that only a person that is approved of God could do such a thing. And so I believe him. And what happens is these people, they kick the guy out of the synagogue. Synagogue was like their church, okay? It was like they could not wrap their minds around this. And so they just, they removed him from their normal weekly worship. The blind man, not Jesus, this blind person who is now seeing miraculously by the power of Jesus because he testified that Jesus was, was a prophet, was somebody that could be trusted. And, and here's a, an issue, again, that we have to understand, which is that um, when we follow Jesus as king, you're going to come into conflict with people who are not going to understand why you're doing what you're doing. They're not going to understand... Uh, what it is that you're following. It doesn't make sense to them because it doesn't follow the rules of the world. And that's okay. So Jesus actually finally finds this guy and he says, 
do you want to follow me? And, and the guy becomes one of his disciples. I think that he probably never left his side from that point on. John chapter 10, Jesus has another instance where he's being persecuted. Um, and here in this case, he says that, um, that he and the Father are, are one. And the people, they can't understand that. They think that he's blaspheming because he's claiming to be God, which he is. They don't get that, that that can't possibly be true. And if it's, if it's not true, then Jesus is, is saying something that deserves the death sentence. If it is true, they should be falling down and worshiping him. And what happens is at the end of chapter 10, they want to kill him. In fact, they're actually pursuing arresting him, okay, intentionally looking for an opportunity, and he leaves. And then in chapter 11, John chapter 11, he comes back to the area, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And the result of that, and we talked all about it last week, so I won't get into it too much, but the result of him raising this person who is, to be disgusting, he's putrefying in a tomb. Jesus restores him to life. He comes out of the tomb by the word of, power of Jesus' word. Jesus has said, uh, God, you hear me. You know that I'm doing this by your power. And Lazarus come out and he walks out and people are there seeing this. It's not like this is done secretly. This is done publicly. Everybody sees it happen. And the result is that they look for now a way to put him to death. The chief priests and the Pharisees give orders that anyone who knows where he is should let them know so that they might arrest him. That's how John chapter 11 ends. John chapter 12, the very next thing that happens, and this is like within a week or so, um, Jesus goes to Bethany. This is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. And... Mary anoints Jesus' feet with this perfume for his burial. And here's all I'm saying, okay? Well, let me get into a little bit of the detail. Jesus is going to die on Friday, and it's going to be, and it's going to be right before the Sabbath starts. Sabbath starts Friday night, 6 o'clock, okay? As soon as the sun goes down, that's Sabbath. That means for the Jewish person, you can't do any work. Jesus is going to die in the afternoon on Friday, which means that they, have, they don't have time to do a proper burial. They can't prepare his body for burial the way that they really want to. They wrap him up in a cloth and throw some spices in there, and then they throw him in a tomb that's close by. That's what they do. His preparation for his burial is actually chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Mary anoint, or Martha anointing. Mary, and let me get the details right here. Mary anointing his feet with his perfume. That's his preparation for his burial. This is everything that he's living for is to pursue that cross, to go to that payment, to make sure that you and I have the opportunity to come boldly before the throne. Amen? Verse 9 now it says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews who were going away uh, were believing in Jesus. So what's happening is that uh, there's such a, a, an outcry, okay, of people that are saying, this miracle is so amazing that we... He must be the Messiah. 
And people are losing their minds over it. And Lazarus is actually walking around. Can you imagine this? He's been dead for four days, and now he's walking around talking to people about what he experienced when he was in the tomb. Maybe you can go talk to him. And people all over the place were spreading the word. Hey, you can go talk to Lazarus. Here's Jesus. He's coming. He's going to come into town. And what Josephus says, he's a first century historian, he says that what would happen is that um, in those days, uh, Jerusalem was like 100,000 people-ish. Like, it's a big city. But in those days, when people would come to this kind of a festival, it would explode into like a, over a million people. Ten times the, the amount of people would be in Jerusalem. They would come from all over. They'd come from all over Israel, come from all over the world, and they would come and they would worship. And as they're coming to Jerusalem, here's Jesus coming down uh, Mount of Olives, the Sunday road, Palm Sunday. All these people are hearing the news. Jesus is famous. And they begin to worship and they begin to exalt him. They begin to recognize that he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And as he's doing this, he's revealing some things about what it is that he's going to do. What kind of a king he's going to be. In verse 14, it says he's going to come found on a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And what happens here is that Jesus is fulfilling the scripture. The scripture is Zechariah 9, 9. He's specifically going to fulfill everything from the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah. He's going to confirm and validate that he truly is the king. And what kind of a king is he going to be? He doesn't come on the white horse as a conqueror. That comes in Revelation chapter 19. Go read that. That's coming later. But right now, he's the, he's the humble king. He's the forgiving king. Even on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He's going to usher in a time of grace. And this is the time that we live in. That he provided forgiveness of sins for anyone and everyone in the world who would trust and believe him. But he's coming as a king. Amen? And here's, here's something that I think that we have to understand. He's the Prince of Peace. That's, that's what this is talking about. He's the Prince of Peace. He's, he's forgiving. He's humble. He's meek. He's mild. He's, he's all these things. He's, he's crying out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's providing uh, a peace between you and God. That you and I, trusting Jesus' sacrifice, trusting his life, confirming it through scripture, con confirming it through personal experience, we can have a peace with God that we never could have had any other way. You, you don't have it. You're not born with it. When you were born, you were born a sinful creature that was an enemy of God. Everything in your life that you did, said, thought, well, I mean, it was putting you more and more at odds with God until you came to Jesus and then he forgave your sins and he provided a way for you to come to, to the throne of grace. So he provides peace that we, we have with God. He, he's the only way that we have that peace. And this is the weird thing, okay? The weird thing about it is that while he provides that peace and that I enjoy that peace with God more than, than I enjoy anything in my life, 
he also came to bring a sword. He says, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword. There's going to be division. There's going to be division between uh, man and woman, between father and mother, between uh, parents and children, between, this one makes sense, between uh, sons and their mothers-in-law. <laughs> he specifically talks about in-laws. Anyway, but here's, here's what's, what's happening. You and I have a peace with God because of Jesus Christ that is the most important thing in the world. There's nothing more important than that. But when that happened, when, when and if, okay, if this is the reality for you, but when that happened, when you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are now found a new creation in Christ, which means that you are at odds with the world around you because it's still lost. It's still in darkness. It's still sinful. And you're, you're different now. You're a new creation in Christ, which means that everywhere you go, every environment that you're in, every relationship that you have um, is now affected by that relationship that you have with God. Those who know Jesus, you are able to have peace with, but those who don't know Jesus, now you, you are at odds with them. The, you're at odds not only with the world around you, you're at odds even with your old self. You realize that there are things that you used to do that you used to enjoy, and now you're convicted by those things? You feel guilty about it? And that's actually a good thing. That means that you have the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you can't be comfortable in your old life anymore. And you shouldn't be comfortable in your old life anymore. And if you are comfortable with the old things that you used to do, say, and think, then that kind of is an indication that you haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to really take root in your life. The Holy Spirit, evident, powerful, um, moving in your heart means that, that you have this, this strange love-hate relationship even within your own self. But as you grow, as you move, as you understand God's Word, and as you continue to apply these things to your life, what happens is that you get further away from that old self and that old you know, addictions, the old things that you used to think, and you begin to walk a little bit more mature. Hopefully, eventually, you kind of begin to get really beyond that stuff, and now you have Christian character. Now you actually begin to resemble that new life that you claimed years ago. But we're at odds. We're at odds with the, the family members around us that don't know Jesus. Anybody, you feel that tension? You go home for Thanksgiving, and and you're not even trying to bring up anything religious, and you just feel like, man, I'm just not comfortable with this kind of talk. The language that I'm hearing, the things that they're drinking, the things that they're doing, it's just like, I love these people. These are my family members. These are my friends. But you feel that division? The school that you used to be totally comfortable, and now you're not comfortable because you see the world through a different lens. It's now you see that people need Jesus and you're desperate for that to happen. The workplace that used to be fine, now is, there's turmoil there. And Jesus came to be the Prince of Peace, but that peace is really between you and God. It's not peace in the world. There's going to be division. And as that division continues, what we are hoping and encouraging and, and praying for is that that, that sense 
of division would, would grow and increase in the life of a believer so that it will push you to be more urgent about living for Christ and speaking for Christ. Not that it would decrease and you'd feel more comfortable. That's not what we want to happen. We want to see that we are more and more heartbroken over a lost world. So as you grow as a mature Christian, what you should find is that you are even more and more at odds, not more and more at peace. The closer you get to God, the more divided you're going to find your life in, in so many other areas. You find that true? I mean, you just turn on the TV and you're like, I can't watch this stuff anymore. I can't support this network anymore, this whatever. I mean, I canceled Disney+. Plus. like what is going on the world is no more lost than it ever was guys it's been this lost forever but as you grow you see there's something going on here it's a division all right about halfway through here no i'm much more than that i don't know what you said but i'm sure it was funny so, what happens is, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, this is getting us nowhere. This, the world's going after him. And man, that's our prayer. That really is our prayer. The world would go after him. That we would see through our exaltation of Jesus as king. That's what they were doing. They were exalting him as king. And what it was doing was it was propelling people to understand that you're either going to follow him or you're going to hate him. There's no, diff there's no room in between to kind of be just kind of apathetic about Jesus. As you follow, we exalt, some will come to know Jesus Christ. As you make him more and more king of your life, and this is kind of a weird thing because he should be 100% king of our life all the time. But we know that we're human beings and that it takes time to grow, to learn, to understand, to kind of get our life all synced up with this. But the more that happens, what's, what's going to happen is that we point to Jesus. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He's going to go to the cross to make that happen. That's, that's the ultimate fulfillment. He goes to the cross, lifted up on a tree, shed his blood so that he can be glorified and that anybody who will look to him, like they did back in, in Exodus, okay, when, or, or maybe it was the book of Numbers, but it was when the people were, were being bitten by vipers and God said, Moses, make this serpent uh, out of bronze, put it on a pole, people will look at it and they'll be saved. This is what Jesus fulfills. He says, well, if I be lifted up on that cross and people look to me for salvation, I will save them. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Every single person, okay, no matter who you are, where you're from, what language you speak, what color your skin is, gender, nothing, okay? Every single person who looks to Jesus will be saved. It doesn't take anything else. You don't have to pay money. You don't have to do good works. You don't have to... It's just Jesus Christ. 
Trust him. You will be saved. And as that happens, as you exalt him in your life in worship, then other people see that difference in your life. They see the difference in a church body, and they come into contact with that. This is the, the wonderful thing about our church. And our church is just a normal church. Amen. Just a normal church. But if we are believers who are authentic, what's going to happen as we come together, we lift up God's word, we lift up God's name, we proclaim Jesus as Savior, then people come into contact with that. They hear it, they see it, and they're just like, something's going on here. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. That's all we got to do. I don't have to convince anybody. I don't have to strong arm them. I don't have to argue them into the kingdom. We just exalt Jesus, and he'll do the rest. Amen? And that's what is happening. Somehow, a bunch of normal, weak, flawed people are exalting Jesus, and other people are saying, I need Jesus. Palm Sunday is such an awesome week of worship because we get to agree with those people in that, that first century who exalted Jesus. And we just say, yep, you had it right for that moment. You kind of messed up a week later, but you had it right right then. Praise the Lord that you did, and that's what we're going to do too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We give you all praise and thanks and glory and honor that you are king. You are our king. You are our king forever. There is no other. In fact, the word says, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We thank you that day is coming. And Lord, we, uh, we're looking forward to it because we recognize the reality of it now so that when that day comes, we will, we will express that with joy. Lord, we pray for those, we intercede for those, uh, who don't realize Jesus as king right now because um, if they don't come to trust him, they'll still recognize him in that day, but they will do it out of fear. They won't be able to deny it, but they won't get to enjoy it. And Father, I pray that we would um, never stop giving you praise and glory and honor, never stop living for you, never stop doing it as authentically as we can, making sure that we trust grace and forgiveness along the way, uh, Lord, but that we would exalt Jesus, lift him up, that his name would never be foreign to our tongues. And Father, as, as we do, God, I pray, would you please just move, move in our midst, move among us, move through us to rescue as many as possible. And we'll give you all the praise we always do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to just continue to celebrate. And uh, obviously, <laughs> Palm Sunday was about recognizing intentionally, verbally, outspokenly that Jesus is king. If this morning is the moment that you are doing that for the first time, then I just invite you to make it known. Make it known. Come to the altar. We call this the altar, okay? And I know in a church we're not supposed to have an altar, 
because we don't sacrifice animals, but you are a living sacrifice. You lay your life down before the Lord and you let him lift you up. The altar is a place for things to die and what's dying is your old self. Amen? If that's on your heart this morning, come. We'll pray for you. We're not going to do anything weird. We just, just want to celebrate that you've come to know Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and sing.